This episode is brought to you in part by the following Government of Canada partners. The Trade Commissioner Service at the Consulate General of Canada in Minneapolis, which supports trade and investment opportunities between Canada and the upper Midwest states of Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota. Hi, I'm Aditi, and this is Brett. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation and butter sculptures. <laughs> That's a great way to start the show. Welcome to this episode. Brett and Steph, a question for you. When you think about the biggest game-changing moments in your careers, have they been driven by big ideas or relationships? And you can't say both. By accident. By accident. That's a good answer. Steph? I'd say relationships for the most part. Chipotle, Steph. By Chipotle. Yeah. You know, I got my job with my second job with Brett over a meal at Chipotle. Really? Cool. What did you have? I had a burrito bowl, I'm sure. Yep. Burrito bowl for sure. And kind of said, what should I work on next? And Brett said, what if you did more stuff with me? And I said, let's do it. Almost three years later. That's so cool. And Brett and I have a mutual friend who introduced us and then Brett introduced me to you. So absolutely. Well, our question of the day is, what matters more in food tech, relationships or big ideas? And the person who prompted that question is our guest, Ryan Shadrick Wilson. She is this incredible force within the food tech community. And with her background, her knowledge and her relationships, she's really helped prominent startups and founders forge needle-moving partnerships with big companies or investors to take them to the next level. She is an advisor, connector, and sort of a secret weapon for so many founders and firms. And she's helped to elevate many of the conversations that we're having here to the mainstream and connected this community to institutional investors. She's also so much fun to chat with, guys. Yeah, it was a blast. It really was. She was awesome. Yeah, we laughed a lot during that episode. First, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. Puna Bio, an Argentinian startup focused on regenerative agriculture and drought-tolerant crops, just raised some seed funding. The company's founding team studied the high-altitude desert of Puna de Atacama for 20 years. La Puna is the highest and driest desert on Earth. Yet the team found, guys, that even under those conditions... There are organisms three and a half billion years old that have thrived. The co-founder says in the press release that those properties they studied in the bacteria can be applied to food crops to help them grow in similar environments. I find this so fascinating. And Brett, it sparked a question for me, which is, do you think solutions like these might be even more effective than indoor farms at increasing the ability of the world to produce more food? Isn't nature amazing, right? Like they said in the press release, like there's things that are billions of years old where it's thrived in years and years. And I mean, frankly, this is what we've been doing in new seed creation or you hear GMOs and it's often an evil word, but GMOs are what enable us to feed the world's population right now. Genetically modified plants are what enables us to feed enough people. And so there's been innovation going on and how do we get more out of the resources we have? And one of those resources is the amount of land we have to grow on. And with climate change, the temperatures and the conditions that we've been growing most of our food on is changing. And so there's going to be new seed breeds and new seed varieties that are invented that will 100% be able to last in different environments. Hopefully, otherwise, we're not going to be able to eat. 
Well, finally, here in California, a historic drought has made it tough for tomato farmers who aren't getting the rain needed to grow tomatoes. That's causing the price of ketchup, salsa, and pasta sauce to go up. The New York Post reports some grocery clients are being asked to pay 80% more for tomato paste compared to a year ago. Guys, this is in addition, of course, to the sticker shock of other staples going up. But with weather-related conditions like this that are sustained, do you think these tomato prices are here to stay? So I think two things are at play here. One is that inflation and commodity price inflation has been relatively low for a long period of time now. And so some of this is like we're catching up because there hasn't been much price change. Second is like, yeah, the environment is changing. So it's, you know, we're having different events that will make it difficult to grow different things. And this is like relates to the first story of like making drought preventative seeds or seeds that can grow. And, and so it's probably not here to stay. What will happen is that as prices increase, consumer demand for those higher priced items will decrease. And so then people will come in and innovate to try and sell more through being able to produce lower priced products. But who knows how long it takes. Do you guys have favorite tomato products? Like Steph, is there a pasta sauce that you love most or just plain tomatoes? I love a good heirloom tomato. I would say I don't have a brand I love. I love Arabiata pasta sauce. It's probably my favorite, mm. a little spice. The spicy one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Aditi? I like, there's these sun gold ones that are yellow orangish that are super sweet. It's the sweetest cherry tomatoes I've found. I love early girl tomatoes out here that are phenomenal. I get very excited during early girl season. Yeah. I love cooking also and a huge, huge, huge like shift when I started only using like San Marzano tomatoes. Yes, I love San, the Cento. You can literally just put those in a pot and heat them up and they taste delicious on their own. And so I made spaghetti meatballs for my son's ninth birthday not too long ago. And that's how I make it. That was his choice. So yeah, I'm very brand loyal when I'm buying canned tomatoes to make anything. I always get the San Marzano. Ah, good choice. Well, coming up, we'll talk to Ryan Shadrick Wilson about how she went from an aspiring civil rights attorney to being a force behind some of the biggest food tech companies. Ryan Shadrick Wilson doesn't need labels. In fact, it's tough to even come up with a job title that fully encapsulates what she does. There are simply too many hats she wears. Advisor, investor, advocate, and strategist are just a few, but even those don't do justice to conveying the influence Shadrick Wilson has had on food and food tech. And she's okay with that. In fact, Shadrick Wilson embraces the freedom that comes with having a role in food tech that defies boundaries. Simply put, Shadrick Wilson has probably influenced many of the food brands you know and love. She started out her career as a lawyer focused on civil rights, but after getting assigned to working on cases in the food industry instead, Shadrick Wilson realized food can be a vehicle for social change. Her path led to a stint with the Obama administration, and she ultimately found herself building a community, a tribe, if you will, of founders, financiers, big food execs, and celebrities, and galvanized them around the power of food and innovation. These days, she's the founder and CEO of Boardwalk Collective, a venture catalyst firm. But well before she was a builder, Shadrick Wilson was a budding social activist, staying close to her family's public service roots. I grew up actually four hours south in Virginia Beach, Virginia. So very different from D.C., right at the bottom corner of Virginia on the Atlantic Ocean, North Carolina border. 
I was the only child of two public servants, so did not a teacher and a judge. My grandfather was a career army, like very much a strong service ethic, did not grow up in an environment where there was any talk of business or finance. So it is sort of funny that I do what I do now. But the mission-driven part was there, right? The public service, that's the connection. You cannot extract that out. I mean, I have to consciously sort of extract that very strong sort of service either out sometimes so I can be good at business or, you know, sign a contract and get paid for my work. I also didn't grow up, you know, in the food space at all. But upon reflection, I grew up very much in nature. It was a beach town, like toes in the sand, you know, most days and surrounded by a strong agricultural community. You know, we picked our strawberries. We got our seafood off the back of pickup trucks. When I was young, these guys in sort of beach chairs would open the bed of their pickup trucks. And that's how we got shrimp and crab. Awesome. They don't do that anymore. The old classic pickup truck fish seller person. Sort of disgusting. And sure, it's not legal anymore. But also nostalgic, right? Yeah. I bought watermelons out of the back of a pickup truck in Florida. Growing up in Florida, like watermelons and corn for sure. Oh, for sure. Peaches and watermelons and all that good stuff. So not food, not business and finance. And that's where I sit now. But there are other sort of threads, I think, that probably pull through. I think growing up in Virginia Beach was like Shangri-La. It was a beautiful place to be a kid and sort of roam free. But it was also Southern Virginia that has some of those deep racial divides you see in the South, gender issues, and a lot of othering of people that really stuck with me and sort of addressing those things that I observed as a kid, that has been constant in all the different iterations of my career. And how did that get reflected as you grew up through your teen years and even, you know, up until college? (laughs) Well, you know, in my polite Southern town, um, it was super diverse. It grew to be a more conservative place politically when I was in my older teen years. And, you know, for example, there was a time when, this has nothing to do with food, by the way, but I do actually think everything comes back to food. I'll get there. But there was a time when our school board said, no more sex education. You can't talk about contraception. You remember those, those years I had pregnant girls in my big public high school class. You know, there was an AIDS epidemic and all sorts of stuff. And so I just started an AIDS awareness club and would do my own announcements in the morning about contraception. And they couldn't prevent students from talking to each other. And so then it took that to other high schools. And so there was a little bit of a rabble rouser, I think. And entrepreneurial thinking also, kind of thinking outside the box there and bringing these issues to the limelight. So that's where you see a lot of connection. And then you went to Princeton for your undergrad. What did you study there? I did. I got to design my own major when I was there, and it was programs and policies for at-risk youth. And I spent my last couple of years designing a nonprofit program. That was my senior thesis that then I was able to launch, and it lasted for 18 years. So I just wound that down not too many years ago. So you were at Princeton and you shaped your own major, which is like you've kind of carved your own path. Then you decided to take that experience and go to law school to make a change. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to law school? I did. I was sort of interested in law school, strongly encouraged by my father to go. He was the judge? He is the judge and felt like I could do anything with a law degree and just go 
do that. I think he was a little bit afraid I was going to launch this nonprofit and do it forever and ever and not sort of spread my wings. And so we made a deal where he would run the little nonprofit that I'd started out of my senior thesis if I would go to law school. And so I did. I got pretty engaged in the civil rights community there and thought I'd be a civil rights lawyer. That's sort of where law school started to point me. I took a job at a big law firm after law school in D.C., one of these big international law firms, had a huge office here in D.C. And on my first day, they said, we know you like civil rights law, but essentially you're the junior person here. You don't get to pick and choose. They asked me if I could just do a three or four month rotation in the food group. And I said, the what? (laughs) I had never heard of food law. I couldn't believe I'd gone to Harvard Law School and I was going to go, you know, look at chicken regulations. (laughs) What did your dad say? Oh, we never heard of such a thing. I mean, DC is a unique place where there's all these regulatory types of law that don't exist in other cities. And at the time, I have to acknowledge, this is many years, 20 years ago, because I'm going to my 20th reunion this weekend. Food wasn't this sort of sexy innovation landscape that we're seeing now. Like Food was just a lot of big food companies and they had big, powerful trade associations in DC. So I guess long story short, I, by mistake, ended up becoming a food lawyer because the firm made me a deal that I could do as much pro bono work as I wanted if I would continue to work in the food law group. And I did. And so by mistake, after a decade, I had developed (laughs) quite an expertise in food regulatory law, which I had told myself was a civil rights issue that we just weren't addressing as such. Not that I was working on food equity. I mean, I was working on legitimately like chicken regulations and such. But over those 10 years, I got to take, I had a couple clients on death row. I had political asylum cases. I was doing racial profiling cases against different police departments. I got to do a lot of really cool stuff. This was back before I had two kids when I could work, you know, two 100% time jobs. And I loved it. And really, I all of a sudden I'm up for partner and they're like, that was cute. (laughs) Now you're a food lawyer, and I wasn't prepared to leave all that behind. Coincidentally, I'll I'll just go to the next phase. The Obamas came to town, and I heard through a mutual mom friend what she was thinking of doing as first lady. I mean, she really spent, it was almost her first year here, putting together pieces of what she was going to do in this role. And I had heard through a mutual friend that she was looking at addressing obesity and nutrition issues, particularly with kids. And so I reached out pro bono, like, oh, I know all the big food companies, if I can be helpful. And then I realized she really was meant it. She wanted to do something meaningful. And so I left and became chief strategy officer and general counsel of the health and wellness initiative that she put together. Was it tough leaving your job? You were a partner at this big law firm. Yes and no. I never thought I was going to be a big law firm partner, but I think there's an identity crisis when you leave an easy to define role. And essentially this was an entrepreneurial opportunity. We were going to develop a new program and initiative and bring in celebrities and CEOs and do all this cool stuff, but it was different. It was a different approach than most other first ladies had taken. And I was concerned that this issue that I thought was so important could become politicized. That was my biggest concern is I was so thrilled to see the White House taking on obesity and really looking at food differently, but I was concerned that it would become a left and right issue. And I just don't think food ever should be. 
So that was one of the things that I really tried to keep my eye on when I had that role was building consensus. Something I want to just like emphasize that you just said, which is like the identity crisis of doing a role that's not as easily defined. And that really triggers something with me because I think that's, that's how a lot of entrepreneurs feel about when they start up. It's something that I always struggled with throughout my entrepreneurial career as a startup founder was my brother was a doctor and you know, always easy to say what he did, but it's not, what do you do? Well, I am starting a company and it's hard to describe. You have a very small peer set and peer group, and it's actually incredibly lonely. The way you defined it or the way you just talked about it really resonated. And I thought it was a really cool way to define that. It's so true, Brett. It's something I still think about. I mean, I haven't, since I left my law firm, had a traditional, easy to just give somebody a one word answer job. And my son just told me at school, somebody asked him what his mom did. And he, he said, I hope you don't mind. I just said you're a stay-at-home mom because that was easier. I was like, buddy, come on, man. I mean, technically I have been working at home a lot during COVID, but you know, I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to have to work on my one-line description just to arm my children with it. But yeah, it is hard. It is hard. Did anything in food law specifically and regulatory issues and, and that side of thing start touching on the obesity epidemic in our country? And how did that kind of tie into what got you excited? I mean, my colleagues would sort of tease me and call me the nuts and berries girl because I always sort of had this, oh, should we be spending all weekend on this project that sells more, you know, 50 cent tacos? I'm not trying not to name any clients. Or, you know, there were moments where it's like, are we really doing the Lord's work here? Get, making sure French fries are safe for the school lunch program? Like, let's, you know, there were moments where I would raise some concerns. But obesity and the obesity crisis started to creep up because I had the pleasure and the pain of sitting in a lot of board meetings for big food companies and their trade associations and watching on the agenda where the obesity crisis was starting to fall. And it was always at the bottom and it was while I was in practice, usually under liabilities. I'm saying that because now we're in such a different place. When you meet with big food companies and small, often obesity or health consciousness, you know, they'll, they'll use different euphemistic words, is falling under opportunities, right? There's a demand that we can seize and we can supply different products to meet this health conscious consumer. It wasn't perceived as that back in the day. And so I did feel like I pounded the table a little bit on some of the topics and it just, it wasn't like bad people sitting around a boardroom like, ha ha, how are we going to fatten up our population today? It was just, there was not, not a business incentive. There was actually a business disincentive to do things differently and healthier. And that's sort of what appealed to me about what was as Obama had in mind, which is we were going to work with companies and applaud those that were starting to take some steps in the right direction to try to maybe create a little bit of that business incentive. Right? If we could just give them some applause and have a PR moment, would that help you know, move the dial a little bit? That was sort of the early thinking. And so here you are, and you are in this incredible position, an incredible platform to have the ear of, I mean, the most powerful policymakers in the world. And you have lots of resources at your disposal. So how did you go about making that meaningful change? I loved the big, broad, white space. Like, hey, we've got a big, ugly problem. How can we tackle it? There were some hypocrisies. For example, we had some of the most A-list 
humans, you know, in celebrity world, reach out and want to do events. And that was fantastic. You know, we do a little research. They might want to show up at a school and say, hey, kids, get moving, you know, eat your vegetables. Great. But then I'd say, hey, man, you know, we're in the green room. I saw your latest, you know, soda deal or fast food restaurant deal. And they, the headlines would be about their multi-million dollar McDonald's contract or, you know, whatever. And it just felt like a little bit hypocritical. But what I was learning in sort of private conversations with a lot of these folks was there weren't any endorsement deals coming from healthy brands, but they would assure me they don't eat them and they don't give it to their own kids. I'm like, that doesn't assure me of anything. Yeah, that's what you have to maintain the relationship, right? Were you effective with any of them? And can you name names or talk about specifics? I will say that there are two pretty prominent female athletes who reached out when their contracts were up for renewal. I talked about making some introductions for them to other types of beverage companies that were more consistent with what they actually used in their training. So I was always happy to make those connections. But what I saw coming was a lot of these folks didn't want to just be paid endorsers. They wanted to be a part of sort of the healthier food movement and they wanted to be investors. So a lot of these athletes that now we see, right? Now you see when there's an announcement of a funding round for some food tech startup, you often see these names. It's been really cool to see them build portfolios and sort of putting some money where their mouth is and walking away from some pretty lucrative endorsement deals and instead making those returns by investing in some mission-driven companies. And so I've stayed close, didn't defend anybody too greatly, I don't think, because I stayed close to a lot of those folks and and serve as a resource, you know, when they're looking at companies to invest in, or I'll pull them into some of the companies I work with. Well, how did you end up moving into this food tech space and revolution and helping to tee up a lot of things? There's so much serendipity in all of our stories. So in DC, when people know your gig's about to be up around the end of an administration, you get incoming opportunities. And a lot of the incoming calls I was getting were from private equity and venture capital dudes. And I'm going to say dudes because they were all dudes at the time. And I was shocked because I don't have a finance background. I didn't really understand. But it was a lot of, hey, we're looking at food. We're food investors. We'd love to have you join us. And I'd look at their portfolios and, and like sort of scratch my head. Couldn't really see the food and ag investing. But what I soon realized was that a lot of capital was realizing there was opportunity in food tech and ag tech and was moving in this direction. I would say I was largely disappointed at the depth of expertise in the space from a lot of the investors. And was this in 2016 at the end of the second term? Yeah, 2016. So you guys know, I mean, since 2016, we've seen a doubling almost year after year of the capital into the space. And I think it made me super optimistic. I thought, man, here I am. I've been trying to work with big companies, working with the government, working with celebrities, public health. If we can get investors on board, we might finally push this boulder over the hill. We really could transform the food system if we could get private market and public market investors starting to move. Why do you think that's so important that we have smaller companies or entrepreneurial companies coming up and making a difference? Because it's pressure on some of the bigger incumbent players who have dominated this space for so long. So it's a twofold answer, I'd say, Steph, because one, I mentioned before the business disincentive to change and innovate. 
And when they're, some of these younger companies coming along, we're starting to take market share. And more important than that, if you look at the demographics the younger generations were really migrating right, to these younger, more innovative and more sort of mission-driven companies and moving away from some of our larger traditional food companies. And they were seeing that happen. But also, I mean, it's not, again, that the big CPG companies were all big baddies, but there were some leaders at some of our biggest food companies like Indra at PepsiCo who were trying to do some things and then Wall Street was sort of slapping her back. So... If some of the larger institutions in the public markets were starting to move, I also thought that was quite meaningful. So what I decided to do is not go work for any particular private equity or venture firm. I identified portfolio companies that were sitting in some of them or that they were looking at and instead created my own sort of portfolio by taking board roles or advisory board roles at a handful. And then I wanted to be able to help and support and share what I knew with not just one firm, but as many as I could influence. And so I just started an initiative to bring together a lot of investors in this space. Over the last five years did what we called food leaders retreats. And they were these private off the record gatherings of some of the bigger investors in the space and some of the investors who weren't yet in the space, but were starting to dip their toe in the water. And that was really cool. And I'm seeing the echoes of picking and creating your own major here as well of kind of just not just taking, okay, this job title, blah, 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 that's what I'm going to do, but creating and figuring out your own way that you can make the most meaningful difference. At what point did food tech have that inflection point from being this sort of niche area to then seeing, as you mentioned, those institutional dollars and the world's most powerful investors coming in? Yeah. Well, certainly it's been over the last five years, and there were some early stories. You know, you interviewed Matt Barnard from Plenty and getting large checks from entities like SoftBank sort of earlier on. That was 20, I don't know, early 2017. So there were a few of those, but now we're seeing there are both some of the bigger sovereign wealth funds, most prominent venture capital firms in this country, some of the largest family offices are having generational shifts and are moving in this direction. I mean, we, it is a tremendous amount of capital that is shifting. You saw that shift in some of the world's most powerful investors and institutions not really paying much attention to this space to having this huge appetite, no pun intended, for this space. How did that come about? There was an investor named Michael Milken who I had met and was in a green room before an event. And it was right around the time that I was trying to decide whether to go work in finance. I was getting these opportunities in finance. And I was saying something offhand like, oh, they just want a woman on their bio page. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I was <laughs> just missing it. And he was the one who said, Ryan, capital is starting to flow in this area you know well, but the investors moving the capital don't know this area well, essentially. And I said to Mike, you know, Mike, you're the one who brings all the whoosie what's-its and finance together several times a year. You should elevate this issue. You know, he's a really savvy investor and he's very well connected and does bring together sort of leaders in finance at the Milk and Global Conference and in other gatherings around the globe. But food was not an issue that was on the docket. That's a lawyer word. That's not really his word. On the agenda. And I knew that he personally very much believed in the power of food and food as medicine. He would tell his personal story, but 
professionally and in, in his investment portfolios and in his Milken Institute was not addressing the issue. So I sort of put my foot in my mouth because I ended up at the end of the conversation agreeing to be an advisor to him and then helping to build what we called feeding change, which was I would sort of tag along. When he was already having a big conference, I would go a day early, invite some key people, pull them in a room privately. So these were some of the titans of finance, titans of business. So it'd be CEOs of some of our largest food companies sitting in a room with some of the bigger investors. But I would pepper in fellow rabble-rousers. <laughs> and so I would always identify five or six what I thought to be some of the most interesting entrepreneurs and innovators, young companies that maybe the establishment hadn't heard of and invite them to be in the room. So that first time, so 2017, I think, first time we did it, the five that we selected, it's funny because they are many of the guests you've had on this podcast, but it was James Rogers from Appeal. We had Matt Barnard from Plenty, Uma Valetti from Upside Foods. We had Bright Seed. I was trying to just like blow people's minds a little bit because a lot of what these companies are doing sounded like science fiction at the time. Now we are, we're more accustomed to hearing about cultivated meat and vertical farms. So at the time, this was these were much newer. And then of course, I would strategically sit people next to... <laughs> so James Rogers from Appeal sat next to one of the largest grocer CEOs and they ended up coming out with a pilot program after that meeting. So I just realized that there was power in convening and connecting people who were starting to think about some of the same topics. And I will say those founders also didn't know each other. And I think there's power in bringing those founders together to Brett's point earlier that it's a pretty lonely role. They are all on the path to game change. And that brings me to Boardwalk Collective. I would love to hear how you started that. You call yourself a venture catalyst firm rather than a venture capitalist firm. I did not come up with that moniker. I made the mistake of doing exactly what I tell my founders not to do. I always am saying you need to define yourself before somebody defines you all the time, every founder. And then I just put together Boardwalk Collective as a umbrella under which to put all of my work. And I include not just the startups that I work for and my board roles, but I also have some NGO sort of board roles. And to me, they're all part of the portfolio. It's all part of the movement. And it was actually a partner at SoftBank who reached out because he was putting some deck together. And he said, I don't really know what to call you. I'm just going to call you a venture catalyst, okay? And I said, oh, yeah, that's actually cool. (laughs) Great. There have been a few other terms that others have used in introductions and in decks. And I'm terrible at like working in my own branding. It's a different skill set, right? I mean, Steph, you are a branding person. I think it's fantastic. Doesn't it meet your seal of approval? I actually really like it. I'd love to hear more about what you're actively doing too. This is great portfolio of companies I'm so proud of. And so I have this portfolio of companies and NGOs for whom I either advise, sit on an advisory board or sit on the board of directors. And then in the last few years, I also started investing. So it's a mix. And so it really is sort of, I just want to be a catalyst. And if my money will be helpful, great. If my connection to somebody else's deeper pocket is helpful, let me do that for you. If we can work through a regulatory challenge together, let's do that. I mean, I am getting old and I've been in this space my whole career unintentionally. And if some bit of my experience is going to help this startup scale faster, then let's do it. All right. Ryan, I understand that you've listened to a few of our episodes, and so you know what's coming. We do the lightning round, one word answers only, 
and we'll see how it goes. We'll start off super easy for you, okay? Princeton or Harvard? Uh, Princeton. See, super easy. Super easy to start. What's the number one attraction in DC? Oh, the monuments. Okay, that is multiple things. Like, pick a monument, Ryan. Have an opinion. Let's go. For merit? I don't know. People love to see that Washington Monument. Washington Monument was her answer. She doesn't seem very confident in that one, though. Technically, two words. Good catch, Steph. That's why we have you around, is to catch things like that. All right, we've been talking about describing your jobs and one lines and not being great at it. We're going to break the rules of lightning around right now. This has never been done before on the podcast. I'm going to allow you to answer with a one-line description of what you do. Oh, Brett, that's the meanest question you could ask. <laughs> Give us your one-liner right now. Oh, geez. This way, when your son's at school, he'll know what to say. We're just trying to help out. Jeez. I am trying to make the world a healthier, happier, more connected place. But you're rolling your eyes, and that was cheesy, and my teenage son would for sure roll his eyes. So I invest and advise in the future of food. <laughs> Love it. I'll accept it. Okay. Biotech, software, or robots? Oh, biotech. Favorite green room snack? Or the thing that, that you always have to have when you're giving a talk? Gummy bears. Two words, but gummy and bears alone wouldn't have worked. From somebody that's trying to make the world a healthier place. And Doritos. I don't know what we're talking about here. I know. Another magical food. When the ice cream truck shows up to your house... What do you buy? Lactate. <laughs> that might be the best lightning round answer ever. I love that. That was awesome. <laughs> completely that was unexpected. Amazing. Uh, you designed your own major. You've kind of designed your own job. What's another thing in life that tends to have like a bunch of norms that everybody just does that you'd like to design your own of? Oh, I'm going to reveal all my secrets. I would like to do a different type of docu-series. Docu-series. Does that have to be one word? Design your own docu-series. Got it. Design your own docu-series. Well, docu-series, I think we can count it as one word. It's got a dash in it. <laughs> Ryan, what's the most ridiculous chicken regulation you've ever been a part of? The kill step? You want to ask more, don't you? Don't you? <laughs> no. No, it's awful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, last one. We're going to end on this one. You talked about a variety of different innovations that you're excited about. What's one innovation that you want to see happen? I am very excited about dehydration. That's my one word. Dehydration. Dehydration technology. Ah, I've actually seen a couple companies in around that space. That's all we got, Ryan. I appreciate it. According to Stephanie, you made the best one answer of all time in the lightning round, which helps make up for all the other terrible answers that you had during the lightning round. But we appreciate your effort. Fully support gummy bears. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early-stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today, I'm here with Samitra, the CEO and founder of Bordet. Samitra, thanks for joining. What's the pain point that you're solving at Bordet? So Bordet is going for the high volume quality inspection, the high end market. For example, food processing plants from California almond markets, pistachio plants to food packaging businesses in India, billion dollar 
they all are only doing 0.1% sample inspection. So that because of that, they cannot do stringent quality inspection. So these companies out there have to inspect things, but they're not good at doing it quickly or in real time. That's right. Got it. How are you solving this problem? We ended up building one of the fastest AI systems in the industry. So essentially, think about human-like inspection using uh, not very expensive RGB cameras, and we convert into human-like inspection, but 20,000 times faster than humans. So now, that enables you to inspect every nut in the processing plant. That's cool. What's the big vision here? Are you only looking to inspect things? And you're, is inspecting nuts the big vision? What else can you do with this technology? Absolutely. Startup, this is a starting point for us, but our goal is to build that no-code AI in a box. Think about that becomes the operating system that glues everything together, all the way from inspecting real-time to controlling upstream optical starting machine and telling them that where the brain, you go and tune yourself to controlling robotic machine and also optionally giving control back to the food safety people so they can build their own AI models and see how their business outcome is happening. Today, I'm here with Mina, the CEO and founder of Impactful Health. Mina, thanks for joining us. What's the pain point that you're solving at Impactful Health? The biggest problem is food waste. So as you know, around $2 trillion worth of food is wasted globally every single year, and that's just a huge amount. So what we're doing as a startup is trying to work first on reducing the waste of fresh proteins. In that way, we carved a piece of that big market so that we can be pioneers in that space. Yeah, that's really cool. How are you doing it then? What we're doing, the way we're solving this is we're creating sustainable active packaging solution that extends the shelf life of fresh proteins. And we're starting with fresh fish as an entry market. Because when we did our um, business model validation, which involved interviewing around 85 stakeholders in the seafood supply chain, we found that fish is really where the biggest need is from all the fresh proteins. It's a very high value commodity that is also extremely highly perishable. That's cool. So what are you making it out of it? I mean, is it just like another form of plastic or what? No, we actually are trying to make this sustainable as well. So we are developing it in a compostable film solution. That's cool. How are you going to take over the world? What's the big vision here? The big vision for us is we want to see our packaging in all the retailers and fresh protein processors that are branded. The way we're thinking of branding is to have an Intel inside model. So we want to show that, you know, this fresh protein has been protected with our tech. Yeah. And we want to see this in every grocery store. So guys, going back to the original question, what matters more in food tech, relationships or big ideas? Ideas are a dime a dozen. In life, relationships matter far more than your idea. People that like hold their ideas tight to their chest and don't tell anybody about them, all you're doing is missing out on opportunities to get feedback and information and help on the thing that you're trying to build. Steph, Ryan, I think, illustrates how important it is to have a champion and how powerful that can be. I think that can be hugely powerful. Just having somebody talk about you, open some doors, get you into the right places, and especially within the food industry, help you to understand how different aspects of our food supply chain work because they are super complex and it is important to have a, a broad understanding of it. Awesome show, guys. See you back here next week.
Full Stack Food is produced by Aditi Roy Media.